Well, good morning. It is uh, good to be with you guys. It actually has been a little bit of a time before I, uh, since I was last up here. So it's good to see you guys and good to get to pop up back up here with you guys. We're going to be actually in Acts chapter 17 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be in the latter half of chapter 17. Uh, I'll tell you guys, as y'all turned there, that over the last week, Marcy and I uh, were celebrating a little bit early our 10-year anniversary. We're actually going to hit 10 years of wedding bliss come May, but about that time we're going to be having a baby. So if you guys didn't know that Marcy's pregnant, she is, uh, just to kind of explain a few things. Uh, but so remember last week we uh, have been uh, just vacationing in the Caymans and Cozumel in Jamaica while you guys have been slaving away. So I say that not to make you hate me, all right, but I say that to just say I, I'm still feeling the cruise ship. And so I'm feeling quite a bit wobbly, so I might be holding on to the podium. I may collapse at some point, but that's kind of what's going on if I'm like all over the place, all right? Uh, but Acts chapter 17 this morning, so we're going to camp out the second half of Acts chapter 17, uh, beginning in verse 16. So if you have your Bible, follow along with me, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. We pray with me. Father God, we ask, just as we open your word this morning, we ask that you would um, draw near to us. I pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear you. Uh, Father, I pray in the midst of all the stresses and the things that are before us, Lord, I pray you give us a brief time that those things would just flood away, um, that we could hear your voice, that we could hear your word. Um, Father, I pray that you would teach us, that you would guide us. Lord, I pray that you would allow this morning to be relevant, um, to be significant. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us and teach us how we enter into our world and how we do it in a way that is winsome and how we do it in a way that is fruitful and insightful. Um, Father, I pray you would allow us to be representatives for you, ambassadors for your glory and for your namesake, and that we could represent you in a way uh, that would draw favor and draw attention to you. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. A few years ago, I ran across uh, a street chalk artist. I don't know if you guys have ever run across these kinds of people, but uh, this deal uh, always has kind of fascinated me. Dude would come up on a sidewalk like this, and he would draw with chalk, all right? And here's one of his drawings, and uh, you know, imagine yourself walking in along in a normal metropolis, coming up on a sidewalk and finding this. And to this day, I kind of still am amazed by how he would draw this, even uh, as if the sun was reflecting off the water of the chalk. Uh, and, and if that couldn't impress you, uh, then he did this one. And, and I love this one, a little mirror image of himself. But the question is, you can tell which one of these guys is real. But the question is, can you tell which beer is real? Is it on your left or on your right? What do you think? Left. All right, great. Uh, he also drew this one. Uh, this one blew me away. An image of firemen uh, going down a sewer hatch, and yet they're going down uh, but up into the sidewalk where people were walking, looking down on it, uh, blowing people's perspectives and angles. And then there's this one, my favorite one, all right? He draws a picture of a woman in a pool. Uh, he's jumping into the pool. Uh, let me ask you guys, bottom left corner, Coke, bottle, can, which one's real? What do you think? Bottle, all right. Uh, I think you're right. I think the can is fake with, along with the lemon, all right? But I, I love this drawing, and I love his ability to depict on 2D, on a sidewalk, a 3D picture, all right? Of course, you have to have a certain angle to see it correctly, because if you come from a different angle, this is what you see. 
<laughs> crazy? If you come from a different angle, just a change of point of view changes the entire picture, right? From one angle, it's this. From another angle, it's this, right? Perspective is really, really powerful, right? Point of view can really determine what you see and how you see it. I love these drawings. I really think they really bring up the point and the idea that really the perspective that you have on life is really determinative for how you see life. In fact, this morning we're going to talk about worldview. And your worldview really is a set of presuppositions you have about God, about the world, and about yourselves. It really determines how you see the entirety of the world. Your worldview really is your point of view in which you approach the reality of life and how you see it. And what I want to do this morning really is kind of talk about this concept of worldview. Uh, we've been all over the map this fall in our sermon series. We've been over, all over heaven and hell. Then we, uh, second half of the, uh, the fall, have been talking about the here and now from topics uh, like politics to social justice to economics and career to missions. We've been all over the place. And really the, the challenge is you have a series like this is how do you wrap this thing up? How do you begin to try to tie this thing together and try to end it on a note that doesn't seem crazy? And ultimately, what we've been trying to do for you guys this fall subtly is demonstrate for you and unpack for you really a Christian worldview. A worldview that defines the entire reality of life. A worldview that makes sense of not just the afterlife, but the present. A worldview that provides meaning and significance and relevance not just to Bible study and church life, but even to careers and to the classroom, the bedroom, and even the boardroom. That wherever you are, there's a worldview that defines and shapes what you see and how you see life to be. And what I want to do this morning is unpack for us really what does a Christian worldview look like? Because a Christian worldview really is the greatest tool that you you and I have as we engage a world and as we witness to a world that is watching. A Christian worldview is how we enter the world and how we enter into discussion. And really it's going to be in light of that worldview that we're going to talk about sharing our faith. And, And that's a concept that we talk about all the time. All series long, we've been talking about how to engage the world, how to enter into our culture, how to share our faith. And what I want to do this morning is really put a much more practical spin on this topic and really get to some pragmatical, really practical ways in which you and I can share our faith and how we do that. Not so much the why and the what this morning, but particularly the how. How do you and I go about engaging our world and sharing our faith? I think we're going to come back to this concept of worldview because what Paul is going to do in Acts chapter 7 is unpack and unfold for those that were in Athens a Christian worldview. I don't think you're going to find a passage that really provides such a nice little bow on this concept as Acts 17 because Paul is going to really basically unpack the entirety of a Christian worldview. And there goes my clicker, all right? Uh, Acts 17. Uh, Follow along with me, if you will. What we're going to see is that Paul is going to be stuck in Athens. Look with me, if you will. Acts 17, verse 16. Luke tells us now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. As we look at this passage, really, it's fascinating. Paul is going to talk about uh, and challenge us, I think, ultimately to know our world. Notice that Paul is waiting in Athens. In many ways, as we've been talking about our series, we've been talking about heaven and hell, future realities that are coming. And the question is, what do we do in the meantime, right? If heaven and hell are sure and if they're coming, then what do you and I do in the meantime? Ultimately, Paul is going to show us in the meantime what he was doing, and I think it's going to be a great example of what you and I are to do. Notice what Paul is going to be doing in this section is that he's going to be, where am I going? All right. Uh, he's going to be, in a sense, learning and observing his world. It's just going to be a rough morning. All right. Hang with me. I've been on a cruise. All right. Hang with me. All right. I'm just kidding. Um, so what we're going to see is that Paul is going to be learning and knowing his world. All right. Uh, notice what he does. First of all, he's waiting. Uh, second of all, notice that he's going to be at one who's observing. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Verse 16 is not the, first, or it's not the last time that we're going to hear that he's observing. Notice verse 22. 
So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, I cannot say that word, I've been working all morning, the Areopagus, and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Again, I observe, verse 23, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with with this inscription, an unknown God. Notice that while Paul was waiting, he was observing his world in the city that, that he was in. In fact, the Greek there for the word observing uh, is the same Greek word that gets as its root for examining in verse 23, but it denotes a diligent studying so as to understand a person, a worldview, or a point of view. Ultimately, Paul was trying to know his culture and the world that he was standing in as best as he could, and he is observing and taking careful thought, careful note. In fact, it's fascinating as he's observing verse 16, it tells us that he was, while he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him. Notice that the observation that he had of the city was, did not and never remained simply intellectual and one of curiosity. That on the basis of what he saw, his heart and his spirit was provoked within him. I think there was kind of a twofold emotional element and response in him. One, I think he was outraged and frustrated by what he saw. He was standing in a pagan culture, a world that had rejected and was ignorant of God. And I think he was uh, frustrated. I think he was, had a righteous anger towards that. But I think it wasn't just a righteous anger that caused him to judge and to stand outside of it. But I think he was also going to be moved with compassion. The kind of compassion would also cause him not just to remain external, but to eventually to enter into it and to understand the culture that he was a part of. Ultimately, we're going to see that he's not just going to observe, but he's going to converse with that culture. Uh, I had a couple of friends in college who uh, were provoked that they wanted to work out, all right? Uh, and their immediate response in that provocation and that uh, emotional move to want to work out and be healthy was they went online and they did as much research as they could into working out, all right? They looked into training regimens. They talked to trainers. They looked into exercises, that which was efficient and safe. And they did all kinds of research for months, all right? But they never worked out, all right? They, they just remained external and intellectual, but they never actually, in a sense, rolled up the sleeves, put on some tennis shoes and worked out, all right? What Paul is going to do is not remain external and intellectual, but he's going to, in a sense, roll up his sleeves and he's going to work out. He's going to enter into the culture. I think for many of us that know Jesus Christ and we look at our culture and we say, oh, I wish our culture was different. I think so many of us, and I'm included in this, stand external with judgment. And I think that's what gets us as a church in trouble. Because it is easy to stand with an eye of observation and look at what is all wrong with our culture and how it is so different than ultimately what God has called us as a people and as a world to be about. And yet it is something different and it's something distinct from that than to stand outside with judgment and an eye that can observe compared to one who enters in with compassion and has a burden to do something about it. Ultimately, what Paul is going to do here is not just observe and stand external, but he's going to enter in to the discussion and enter into the culture to understand and to know it. Notice what he says. Notice what Luke tells us in verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with them. Notice Paul is all over the place in this culture. In one moment, he's in the synagogue, I think, talking religion with the Jews. The next moment, he's in the marketplace talking maybe literally economics or just normal day, everyday affairs of life. And the next moment, he's going to be in the Areopagus talking with philosophers at the highest levels of academia. Paul could move into each and every arena and discuss, and he was trying to learn more and more of what was this culture's worldview. How did they see the world? How did they see themselves? And how did they see God? And Paul could and did interact in all these different spheres. And it's fascinating to me as he converses and as he engages, because I think we're going to learn a few things about conversing, all right? I think we as a church, and sometimes we who do know Jesus Christ, are awful at this, all right? 
Paul is going to enter into a culture and he's going to converse and conversing denotes that he listens. All right. Uh, ultimately that you and I have to be prepared to listen. I, I think the skill of listening is a lost skill. All right. For so many of us, so many of us maybe are not that good at communication. And even if we are good at communication, very few of us are good at listening. I'll tell you, uh, recently I was in a set of conversations with some people and I was blown away with how my own contributions into a discussion didn't change or influence the other person's verbal agenda. It was like I was just getting steamrolled for a couple hours, all right? Uh, And what I had to say didn't matter at all in the discussion because the person wasn't listening at all. All the The only thing they were listening to was their own voice and what they wanted to share and what they wanted people to think of themselves, and let me tell, tell you guys, as we enter into a culture and as we converse, as we enter into a dialogue, you and I have to be awesome listeners. <laughs> I'll tell you guys, as you enter into a culture and as you want to understand a culture, even as one, uh, Marcy and I have got to spend a couple of years even in a foreign culture living and trying to understand culture, listening and questions are the best tools you'll ever have. <laughs> to know someone, to know a culture, you've got to listen all right, and I think Paul was in these different places listening and engaging and asking questions. And therefore, what he want, one of the things he was finding out is that he was quite misunderstood. <laughs> Do you guys notice how did the people describe him? He was an idle babbler. He was discussing things of strange deities. He was quite misunderstood. In fact, it wasn't just Paul. The early church was quite misunderstood as well. Some of you guys may know this, but the early church was actually accused of incest. Why was that? Uh, they were greeting with one another holy kisses uh, to brethren and sisters. And so the world was quite confused as to why brothers and sisters were kissing. All right. There's a lot of confusion going on. All right. Second of all, the early church was taking the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and taking that as a celebration. We call that the Lord's Supper or communion. And so what was the early church confused and accused of? Cannibalism. All right. The early church, their faith, their practice was quite misunderstood by the culture. It wasn't true just in the first century, but it's also true even today. You and I, as those that know Jesus Christ, you and I got to prepare to listen. And also when we were listening, what we're going to find is that we're quite misunderstood. The fascinating thing is, is despite the accusations and despite the misunderstanding, the message that we have is one that wants to be found out about. All right. Notice what happens to Paul, uh, verse 19. And so he's discussing with these different groups of people. And so they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. And notice, you don't have to be prepared to explain our faith. You don't have to have all the questions answered. You don't have to explain every objection to the faith, but you have to have an explanation for what you believe. Despite the misunderstandings from our culture and from this culture, you don't have to be prepared to provide a defense. Uh, In fact, in the early church, they were described, they called themselves apologists, not because they were apologizing for what they believed, like, I'm so sorry. But their apology was actually what we would call an explanation. They were explaining their faith to the culture. The culture had objections, they had misunderstandings, and so the apologists were not saying, hey, I'm so sorry, but the apologists were explaining the faith that they have. And if you know Jesus Christ, the representative that you are of him in the culture is one who's to be an explainer of the faith that you possess and of the faith and of the Savior that you have. You are an ambassador and a representative meant to be an explanation for that faith and for that Savior. Last thing that I want to challenge you guys to realize is that uh, in that culture and in our culture, always be ready for the lure of the novel. Notice verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. (laughs) In that day and time, they were caught up with what was new and what was novel, and it's no different today. It's not just that we're caught up with the latest iPhone, but even in ideologies, even in philosophies, even in conceptions of truth, that which is new and novel always seems better. It is always more popular. And so you and I, if we have a faith in Jesus Christ, have to be ready to resist that lure 
Because what is new often, frankly, is not new at all. I will tell you every heresy that the church has faced in the last hundred years we've heard before. Uh, a couple, five, six years ago with Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code and the, all this discussion of the secret gospels, <laughs> the church had heard that in the third century. That wasn't secret to us because we had heard of other gospels out there already. We already had an explanation and a defense for it. Even in the last year, Rob Bell's discussion and, and even the years before him, the emergent church that came out, many who were pushing it back against the institutional church and the dogma and the doctrine of the church that was no different than what we heard in the 19th century with liberalism and Frederick Schleiermacher. They said that what religion is is not doctrine and dogma, a set of propositions about who God is, what the world is, and what man is about. But ultimately what religion is and what God ultimately wants is just a feeling. And so uh, what we've heard from Rob Bell, what we've heard from postmodernists is something we've heard before and it started actually in the 19th century. It's not new at all. In fact, I knew what Rob Bell was going to say before he said it because we've heard it before. And the church hasn't had an answer to it already. And so much of what our culture brings us is not new at all. And so resist that which is new and novel because frankly, it's not new at all. And, and frankly, it's just been repackaged to look a little bit different, but it's the same objections that we've heard over and over again. That as you and I enter into our culture, one of the things that fascinates me as I look at Paul as an example of this, this is a favorite passage for missionaries. So you think about entering into a foreign culture, how you do that. What Paul does is he enters into a culture to understand it is fascinating to me because he can dialogue on all different kinds of topics. He goes from philosophy to religion to maybe to economics and the marketplace and and natural normal affairs. And and I wonder, how did he do that? I can talk about sports all day and computers, but that's about it, right? I I can't really go into philosophy or science. I'm, I'm pretty limited, all right? And yet Paul, in a sense, was a renaissance man. He could talk in every different arena. We're in a culture in which we've specialized, we're experts in certain things, and yet Paul could venture in to different arenas. How could he do that? He was clearly in the world, but he was not of the world. And so how could he dialogue in so many different arenas? What was going on? Ultimately, I think what Paul had was he had a Christian worldview, and that worldview determined everything that he saw in the world and had an implication for his faith on every different arena of the world. Which is why as we walk through this fall, what we've been talking is we talked about politics, social justice, uh, careers or missions. As we've looked at how our faith and a, a view of and the Christian faith, how it looks and it determines and influences these different arenas. What a Christian worldview does is it ties these things all together and provides a uniform, integrated view of life. That integrates the sacred with the secular. <laughs> And what Paul is going to do here really is fascinating for verse 22 on is we're going to see him engage the culture based on a Christian worldview, based on a worldview that's going to provide a bridge to the culture that he was standing in that was going to link them to a Christian worldview that explained life entirely. Notice what he does, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What Paul does is he starts out as he determines and identifies a bridge within that culture. He finds something in the culture that was true in part, and he's going to use that as a bridge and a discussion topic to talk about a fuller viewpoint of truth, all right? He's examining their culture. He's examining their worldview, their life, their beliefs, and he finds something in it that he says, hey, this will bridge to really the truth that defines God, the world, and ourselves. And he identifies a bridge. And what's fascinating to me, what he says is, as he speaks to them, a culture that's rejected Jesus Christ. And he says, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Verse 22 catches me off guard because how could he say to a culture that had rejected Jesus Christ that they were religious in all respects? How could he be so affirming of them? I think by and large, you and I are an all or nothing people, right? 
We are either all into something or, or all out of it. And so if I were to ask some of you, how many of y'all were there the opening night for Twilight? If you were going to be honest, would you raise your hand? No one wants to be honest. All right. Just a few guys. All right. Uh, what I laugh is for some that have seen Twilight, especially the guys, I always love how they provide a disclaimer as to how they saw it. I had a friend who was saying, yeah, I was watching Twilight. I was on an airplane because I was held captive against my will watching this thing. Right. So he had an opinion about it and wanted to talk about it. Right. Uh, but I love how whether it's Twilight or different things, you and I are either all into something or all out of it. Uh, I'll tell you on day two of our week long cruise, I finished the second book of Hunger Games and I was in a panic because I didn't have the third book. All right. <laughs> And so we're in, we're in the Cozumel, we're in Jamaica, and I'm looking for an English bookstore somewhere because I'm dying to read the third book. So if you have it, let me borrow it, all right? Um, uh, but, you know, we are all, either all in or all out of something, right? We're very, uh, very few of us are lukewarm on certain topics. I even thinking about even our own world here at Texas A&M. For those of us that are not completely into traditions and don't stand or want to stand at every football game, what do we call, what kinds of Aggies are they? Two percenters, right. There's only two percent that separates them from a University of Texas student, right? We are either all in or all out, right? We don't really leave a lot of middle ground, all right? And I think Paul was frankly different. I think Paul allowed for more middle ground, which allowed him to build bridges that sometimes we don't feel as comfortable building. He steps into a culture that has rejected Jesus Christ and does not see God, the world, nor themselves in the same way that he does. And he can say to them, I, I observe that you're religious in all respects. Because there's a piece, there's a component of truth here that I see that you've recognized. And what I want to do is explain it to you. So he jumps on that bridge and he makes a connection for them with what was true and also familiar to them so that he can bridge them to something that is unfamiliar, but even more broadly true. What he's going to do is he's going to identify a bridge to connect them to his Christian worldview that will provide an explanation for all of reality that is true and one that they cannot argue with. So notice what he does. He identifies the bridge. And what he's going to do after identifying the bridge is he's going to unpack the entirety of a Christian worldview. Notice he says in verse 23, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So it says, here's the bridge. Here's what you recognize. It's something that you don't completely understand. So let me come along and explain it to you. And so he says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Because what he's going to do is he's going to begin here to unpack for them a Christian worldview. And really, what is a worldview? I've been using this word over and over again. What is a worldview? It's a set of presuppositions which we hold about the basic makeup of our world. And we all have one if we can't explain it. Some of you guys really couldn't put feet on or explain what your worldview is. Hopefully, in the aftermath of this morning, you'll be able to do that with a little bit more clarity and conciseness. But ultimately, a worldview is a set of assumptions you have about a series of things that really define for you the entirety of how you see life, how you see the world, how you see God, and even how you see yourself. And these things are all linked together and they cascade to one another. And what Paul is going to do is show exactly how these things relate to one another. In fact, that's why the scope of a worldview is universal. It's going to explain all of life, all right? It is the perspective or the point of view that you venture onto that allows the picture of life to be crystal and, and uh, aligned and clear. And lastly, what you're going to notice, the, the foundation, I think, as we look here, at least for a Christian worldview, the foundation of a worldview is the person and the purposes of God. The foundation for a Christian worldview is the person and the purposes of God, which is why, as Paul is going to unpack for them a worldview, he's going to begin and centralize himself on different aspects of the nature and the person of God. Notice what Paul does as he begins to unpack a view of God. First of all, a favorite quote I have from Tozier. He says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you believe about God is going to determine everything else about you. What you believe about God is going to determine how you see yourself how you see the world, 
how you see your job, how you see your money, how you see marriage, how you see the bedroom, the boardroom, or even the classroom. Your viewpoint and your understanding of who God is is going to cascade and determine and influence everything else you believe. And I'm going to try to show it to you this morning because what a worldview is, is a cascading set of presuppositions that Paul is going to unpack one by one to show you and I really what a worldview looks like and what the assumptions are that are built upon it. And so watch this. First of all, watch where he begins. Verse in verse 23, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. I think the first thing that Paul is going to say to this culture is that uh, the primary building point for a worldview is what you believe about truth. Particularly this, how do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? Some of you can answer, well, a lot of the stuff I learned from my parents, uh, then a lot of stuff I learned from the classroom. Um, and even as you look culturally and sociologically, uh, we answer that question in all different kinds of ways, right? I'd argue that the primary way that you and I answer that question today is by experience, right? That what I experience, what my experience is telling me, my intuition, my feelings really is the primary arbiter for what I think to be true. A day uh, not long ago, before that, what we would have said was science. Science determines what is true and what is not true. In fact, even though that you and I live in a postmodern culture today, you and I live in a modern university scholastic setting. So you and I have, in a sense, on one level, postmodernism and, it, and its emphasis on experience here in the university and its emphasis on science here or reason. And so experience and reason are barraging us so that what you and I really think that truth is determined by is reason and experience. The question becomes really, how does the revelation of God fit into that, right? How does the Bible square with and relate to science or, or even my experience. If my experience says something is good and yet the scriptures say, don't do it. What do I trust? What has the highest level or voice of authority in my life? The analogy I like to use is often of that of the chaperone, right? Uh, so for you and I who are trying to date in elementary school or junior high, as brutal and awkward as that was, a lot of us uh, often had chaperones, right? There was someone there that either drove you somewhere with a date, which I don't know why we did this, all right? Uh, and then they sat there either beside you or behind you at a theater to watch and ensure that nothing ungentlemanly was occurring, right? Uh, that, that chaperone was there to determine what was occurring was above board, all right? Today, really, as you ask that question, how do you know what you know? Really, that's a question of a chaperone for truth. What is the chaperone? What is determining whether it is appropriate that you believe and hold something to be true? Right? If you open the scriptures today and you say, I think Jesus died and he resurrected and that he performed all kinds of miracles. Well, I can't put that in a test tube, but I can't reproduce that. So surely then that can't be true. That's not valid outside these walls in our culture today, right? Because what reason can validate and what my experience can validate are seen as higher authorities for what I can say I know. Ultimately, what Paul is going to say is that the beginning spot for a worldview is based on this. How do you know what you know? And so he says to them, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He's going to say it similarly in verse 30. Notice he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. I want you guys to notice is that God looks... (laughs) Uh, at least especially prior to Jesus Christ, and he describes this period as a period of ignorance, all right? It's a period in which we did not know, could not see. In the aftermath of Jesus Christ, he says, God is now declaring to all men everywhere to repent. There's a distinction, really, in what you're understanding about knowledge. What I want you guys to see, really, the scriptures are saying, is that apart from the revelation of God, you and I would be in the dark. Apart from the light of the word of God, there is very little that you and I could with resolution and with clarity grasp and understand. Unless God had spoken, we would not know. And so as we look at our cultural emphasis on reason and on experience, I think God wants us to worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
It's not that we cannot use our minds to understand his word or his truth, but ultimately all of those emphases and all of those chaperones stand under the word of God. The word of God is the highest authority in the land as to what is true. And so how do you know what you know? Partly reason, partly experience, and I think primarily the word of God. The word of God provides a clear and an authoritative answer to what you know and how you know it. And so Paul is going to build on from there, though. He's going to go next to not just that God is a revealer, but God is creator. Notice uh, verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God is not just a revealer. God is also a creator. Second spot that Paul moves to really answers, I think, the second presupposition question that a worldview asks, and that's this. Why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there something here instead of nothing? Ultimately, when we ask that question, there's all kinds of answers. Obviously, you know, uh, the scriptures are going to say that God created out of nothing. He created something out of nothing. Science textbooks, classes are going to answer that differently, that, uh, that there was uh, uh, evolution, that there was a crazy by chance uh, process that occurred that has brought about and explained why we are all here. There's all kinds of answers for why there is something instead of nothing. And the question is, how do you answer that? Really? And the, the primary thing that you realize is that these begin to cascade because how you answer the first question about how you know what you know leads to then how you answer the second question as to why is there something instead of nothing? If you dismiss the revelation of God, then the only thing you have to answer the second question is science and experience, right? If you've dismissed revelation, then it begins to cascade and it determines how you answer it and the perspective you have. You look at every following question. Ultimately, what's fascinating is how you view God is going to begin to shape how you view humanity itself also. Notice where he goes next is this. It's not just that God is creator. It's not just that he stands outside of his creation, but he's also a part of creation and involved with it. Notice that he is also a relater. Uh, Second half of verse 26 uh, he says uh, that God has uh, made from one man every nation of, uh, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And in him we live and move and exist, as even some of our own poets have said, for, he, for we also are his children. Well, what is he saying? Ultimately, God is a creator, so he is distinct from the creation, all right? Paul will say that he created, he does not need us. He does not need our hands. He does not need our service. And so he didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he was broken. He didn't create us because he needed something from us. He created in the overflow of his glory and the overflow of his desire to show off his beauty and his magnificence. So the creation comes and is distinct from the creator, but it is not distinct in the way that deism would say in which God has created a watch, wound it up and walked off and is separate from the creation. God is creator, but he's also a relator with the creations, which means he is not the same as the creation, but he is not set apart, distinct, and completely unrelated to the creation, right? So Genesis 1 will say that humanity is in the image of God. We share something in likeness to our creator, but we are not the same as the creator. And so ultimately, as God is relator, begins to set up and help us answer the question, how do you explain human nature? What are we? (laughs) Why are we here? What is our point? What is our sense and means for satisfaction? What is the purpose of our lives? All of that really cascades off of the question really primarily of who do you believe God to be? <laughs> because if he is creator and he is the inventor of this, then surely he has designs and purposes for what he's created. 
But if there is no creator, then it doesn't matter what we think of what he is. We can determine for ourselves what we are and what we want, right? Ultimately, if there is a creator, then he has a design and an invention and an intention for who we are and what we're to be. Ultimately, human nature really is answered in the shadow, in the aftermath, reflection of who the creator is. Ultimately, someone answered that what human nature is is a combination of material and immaterial. We've talked a lot about that uh, this fall as we look at death. Death is the ripping apart of that, which is material and immaterial. But others would say that humanity is simply material. There's nothing immaterial about him. There's nothing that will last beyond eternity. That once he dies, he goes back into the ground that he was created from, and that is it. So notice, who you believe God to be impacts who you believe man to be, and therefore, who you believe man to be will impact eventually what you believe the afterlife to be, right? Uh, if man just goes back into the dust and there is no afterlife, again, it's all cascading back to who we believe God to be. We talked about this in the early part of the fall, that ultimately what you believe about heaven and hell reflects back on who you believe God to be, right? If we don't have a hell, then we don't have sin. And if we don't have sin and we don't have a Jesus who died for us, then we don't have a God who's holy and upset with our sin. It all connects and is cascading off one another because ultimately what Paul will say next is that God is a judger. Notice where he goes next in his worldview. Not just that he is creator and relator, but that he is judger. Verse uh, 29. But being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man, that humanity and the divine nature, our natures are similar because we are created in his image, but we are not the same. We are not, as some religions would say, that we are divine or the same as God. We are distinct. We are more than just mere material, but we are not the same as the divine. And so Paul will say we are distinct from the divine. Therefore, he goes on and says, uh, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. (laughs) Because he has affixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What is Paul saying? I think what Paul is saying is, as you look at who God is and then who man is, that ultimately what we see is that in the relationship of man with, with the divine, there is a problem. Ultimately, uh, God is separate from us, and an aspect of his separation from us is because we are sinful. And so Jesus had to die on our behalf, and in his death, he stood in our place so that we could be reconciled back to our creator and relator. We were designed to relate and to know God himself. And yet there's something wrong with not just our relation with God, but even our relationship to the creation. There are things that are not as they ought to be. And so the reality for that is that there's something wrong with the human nature that we are hostile. The scriptures will say against God, we've sinned and we've fallen out of favor. And so God had to send his own son to die on our behalf, to stand in our place that we could be reconciled with him. Notice our view of God, our view of humanity has led to our view of what salvation is, the condition of man, and then ultimately what God has to do so that we can talk about an afterlife. Ultimately, God as judger helps us answer the question that is in every worldview, how do you determine right and wrong? How do you determine right and wrong? How do you determine what is good and what is bad? What is the standard you measure those things against? And then lastly, the other question, what happens to a person at death? Really, as we've been walking through the series this fall, we've centered in on that question. But that question really is at the end of a worldview that was built on all these prior assumptions, and that's this worldview that really wraps all of this together. God is a revealer, one who has spoken so that we can know him. And because he's spoken, we can know him as he's revealed himself to be, who is creator, distinct, and independent from the creation, and yet related to the creation and caring for the creation. And yet there's a problem with the creator and the creation in that not just humanity, but all of creation is groaning and waiting for a redemption and a change of what is right now. 
All of us wish for something different. Our world is quite clear of all the inhumane and evil that exists. There's something wrong with what is. We're waiting for something that is better. So a Christian worldview comes along and says, here's what's wrong. That humanity has sinned against God. God has uh, broken that relationship. And yet Jesus Christ has come to forgive us for our sins, to right that relationship, and to bring about a redemption and a restoration that is coming in the future. Notice all of these progress off one another, and there's a progression in which these questions are cascading. How do you know what you know determines what you believe about God the Creator and why there is something instead of nothing? And what you believe about God the Creator sets up for what you understand His creation and particularly humanity to be. And the basis of who you believe God to be as it's set up for who we are, then we have an understanding of what God sees and thinks of us and the problem that we have, and then what God has done about it. So we talked about heaven and hell this semester. It's really a discussion primarily about who God is, and it's a discussion not just about the uh, heaven and hell and the here and now, but a discussion of a Christian worldview that ties all of this together. So what do we do with this? What did Paul do with it? Ultimately, as we kind of pull back and we try to wrap up, let me say this, that I think ultimately that as we engage with the world and as we try to represent Jesus Christ to a world, a Christian worldview is how we approach it. How do we particularly apply a worldview to our, uh, the world that we're part of? How do we take a Christian worldview and bring it up in a discussion with someone who is completely diametrically opposed to what we would believe? I think primarily we do just as Paul did, and that is that we start with bridges. Uh, let me, uh, I'll tell you guys, I was at a conference a couple weeks ago, and I was fascinated thinking about the concept of movies. And that there's a sense in which movies reflect back on real aspects and claims of truth and that movies are great windows to where our culture is, to what our culture believes, windows that sometimes are quite accurate to truth and quite at times inaccurate to truth. But whether it's movies or whether it's conversations or whether it's interviews, I want to challenge you to begin to look for bridges. What are the bridges that our world is wrestling with and the concepts that they're wrestling with that connect to a Christian worldview? Let me give you guys a few examples of things that you'll find in movies and books and interviews, aspects that really set up for great bridges for discussion and dialogue. Particularly the search for truth. Again, back to presupposition question number one. How do you know what you know? As people are wrestling with truth, where do they go? What do they look towards? What are the voices and the authorities in their life? And on the basis of those things, are those things completely accurate at times? Are they completely trustworthy at times? What are the voices, what are the authorities in their life that cause them to search for truth? Where do they go when they're searching? Second of all, uh, I think people are, are moved and, and are in wonder at creation. And, and particularly even in creation, there's a dignity of humanity that people recognize. There's something distinct about humanity. Humanity is not like the rest of creation. Well, why is that? What separates humanity from the rest of creation? And why would you make that separation? Why would you argue for that? And especially when you look at that and compare to the contrast that we see at times in movies and in newscasts all the time of the tendency to human evil. So there's something really dignified about humanity and at the same time there's something really awful with humanity. Uh, it's interesting, look at the top 100 movies on the International Movie Database right now that have been rated and how many of them denote the complete darkness of humanity. Some of those movies are incredibly dark and they're making the point there's something wrong with humanity. It has a tendency to evil, a tendency to rebellion, a tendency to crime. Why is that? What is broken in us and why is it broken? And how is it fixed? Again, those are questions I think movies are asking, questions that are raised that are great for discussion, questions that are raised not just in movies but even in interviews. And then lastly, people's fear of death or their hope for the afterlife as people look at not just the present but are looking toward the future. I think as you look at movies, as you look at these aspects, I think these are great bridges for discussion and wrestling with really a person's worldview. How do they know what they know? Why is there something instead of nothing? 
What is the nature of human, humanity? Um, ultimately, how do you determine right and wrong? And then lastly, uh, what do you believe about when a person dies? What happens? How do you answer those questions? Those questions really are the basic presuppositions that set up and define any person's worldview. And in those, you get great bridges, great moments to discuss and connect with someone to pull out for them, hey, what is their worldview? How do they see the world? Why do they see the world that way? How do they see God? I want to challenge us to be people that are looking for bridges and listening in discussion. Not standing external and judging a culture and a world that's broken and messed up, but stepping in and engaging with it in compassion and listening and wrestling and conversing with our culture to say, hey, what is it you believe? How do you see the world? Why do you see the world that way? How do you see God? And why do you see God that way? In so many books and so many interviews, you're going to hear uh, discussions again that go back to the nature and the person of God that will ultimately go back to, well, I just can't imagine God could be that way. I just don't feel God would do that or think that or act that way. But ultimately, how do you and I determine who we believe God to be? Do we go to a revelation that we stand upon or do we go to our personal experience and our personal feelings? What is verifiable? What is clear? What is authoritative? Again, those are the assumptions that set up a worldview that allow us to enter into a discussion. But really, the point of all this, though, is Jesus Christ, right? The point of entering into a discussion really is always about Jesus Christ. As you enter into a discussion, let me challenge you, whether it's about social justice, whether it's about poverty, whether it's about marriage, homosexuality, whether it's about uh, a person's view of God, uh, that ultimately there's a, there's a difference between the public arena and the private arena. That if it's sitting in my office and I'm talking with someone, uh, it's sure quite appropriate for me to say, well, I think the Bible says this, and so let's talk about that. But in a public arena, in a classroom, in a courtroom, in a boardroom, you have to argue and discuss worldviews in a different manner. Ultimately, I think you have to argue in many ways, much like the Proverbs do, as to the fruitfulness of godliness. The way that God has designed the world is meant to work in a certain way, and the reason why things don't work is because we've strayed from God. Ultimately, I don't argue for things in a public arena on the basis of, hey, well, America is supposed to be a Christian nation, or because the Bible says this or that. But I step into discussions on the basis of, hey, is this working, right? If God has designed things and called us to life in a certain way, then he's called us to protect us and to provide for us. And if we strayed from that, there's something that resonates within people that life is empty and broken and is not working because frankly, we're pursuing it differently than God has called us to. But as we enter in this discussion, ultimately we're trying to call people to a person, not a paradigm, not a worldview, but a person. Ultimately a discussion about social justice, about marriage, about the world, about science, ultimately is not meant to start and end there on that bridge. You're meant to move from the bridge to Jesus Christ. Let me challenge you, don't get distracted by the bridge. (laughs) Don't get stranded on the bridge. The bridge is meant to move toward the culmination of all human history and the culmination of any discussion, which is Jesus Christ. Don't get caught up in the periphery that's meant to move you to the person. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, and this discussion and this sermon and this talk this morning is a little different, I will admit. But again, the point is, all of life, all of discussion, all of conversing with a culture is meant to bring up and highlight the person of Jesus Christ. The reason we do this every morning is for and because of Jesus Christ. Uh, a few years from now, you guys are going to take off. Uh, a few years from now, I may be gone here. And the point is not about the people that are up here. The point is about Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus more uh, this semester than you knew him last year? As you head off and head through finals and as you head for Christmas break, will you know Jesus Christ more in and through those periods and phases and experiences than you know him now? My hope is even in finals, even as you enter into those kinds of experiences, you're having an opportunity to know Jesus Christ more. 
This is a Christian worldview says that he is a creator of all things and therefore he is relevant to identifying with and caring for every element of his creation. School work are not aspects that are oblivious to his gaze and oblivious to his care. I'm going to challenge you in the midst of the experiences that you're stepping into, ask and wrestle and invite Jesus Christ into those things that you could know him more, that you could see him more and that you could walk with him more in and through those things. And ultimately, as we engage, as we enter into a conversation with our culture, my hope and my prayer is you guys will look for these bridges that really set up and bring to a discussion of a person's worldview. How do they describe? How do they define? How do they explain life? How do they explain the world? How do they explain God? How do they mount that discussion, that argument, and ultimately helping them find and articulate their worldview? Does their worldview hang together or does it splinter? Does it, does it hang together? Is it identifiable to them or, or do they need help beginning to put these things together? How do they know what they know? Why is there something instead of nothing? What do you believe about human nature? How do you determine right and wrong? And ultimately, what do you think about when a person dies? What happens? I think these are the primary questions that people are asking, no matter their religion, no matter their persuasion, no matter their culture. I think there's those questions that allow us to step in with a Christian worldview answer that will connect and that I think will fill a void. And let me challenge you to think along those lines and to be looking for those bridges as you enter into people's lives and enter into discussions. And so let me pray for us. Father God, I give you great thanks this morning uh, for uh, a faith that holds all of life together. I thank you that you care not just for our doctrine, but that you care for our devotion. Thank you that you care not just for our spiritual lives, but even for our careers and for our classes and uh, every arena and every element of our lives. I thank you that no element and no aspect of our life is outside of your gaze, outside of your care, outside of your concern. Father, I pray that you'd allow us to see life more integrated, that you would allow us to not divide the sacred from the secular, that you'd allow us to see the implications for our faith on every arena of life. Father, I pray you'd allow us to step out of here devoted more to a person. You'd allow us to graduate from this place confident of who you are and how you've designed life and how we can walk with you. Father, I ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. You guys, thanks for being here this morning. If you guys have questions, come up. I'd love to chat. Otherwise, you guys have a great day.